This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. You're taking that understanding, the best you have of how to get out of suffering Mm -hmm. and do your best to bring everybody with you and applying that mind onto your vocation of dance or culinary arts or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and using it, actually apply Dharma. That's my new thing. Like, let's not learn Dharma. Let's apply it right now. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast with David Nickturn on the Be Here Now Network. My name is Michael Kammers, your host and monologist. All of us here at Be Here Now and Dharma Moon sincerely hope this podcast finds you as well as can be, and we are happy that you are joining us. Here at CSM, our guide, senior Buddhist teacher, musician, and entrepreneur David Nickturn discusses how to lead an integrated life involving spiritual practice, creative expression, and right livelihood with our guests who embody and manifest these principles in their own life. And in this episode, we are very fortunate to have interdisciplinary artist and Buddhist practitioner and teacher Miriam Parker joining us. In this episode, David and Miriam get deep into a vulnerable conversation about the nature of practice and how to apply it in our creative lives. It's a warm, flowing conversation, and we are grateful Miriam was generous enough to share her time and journey with us. I'll share Miriam's artist statement to finish setting the table, and then we will dive right into the episode. Miriam Parker has been working within the avant-garde jazz community as an artist and collaborator since birth. She uses movement, installation, paint, and media to build modular, kinetic environments that become extensions of the choreographed body. Through reorganizational practices, Parker refines her understanding of individuality outside of traditions built from oppressive ethics. Her practice is to find new modes of freedom through multiple narratives as a means to evolve. She does this through collaboration with other artists, musicians, filmmakers, dancers, and meditation practitioners all equally concerned about social injustice and deeply rooted in experimental performance and interdisciplinary creation. You can find out more about Miriam at her website, miriamsparker.com. Also, as you'll hear at the end of this episode, Miriam has started an organization called Prana Life, where you can connect with her in community for teaching and retreats. You can learn more at www.pranalife.com. Okay, our introduction is complete. And it is now our pleasure to share with you episode number 36 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast, Applied Dharma with Miriam Parker. So welcoming everybody back to the 
Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. And uh, our very special guest in this episode is Miriam Parker, who taps in very auspiciously on all three of our uh, elements. She's a dynamic creative, and I'm going to talk more with her about that aspect because you could you could say dance, you could say movement, you could say yoga, but I, I'm going to say it's something including and beyond all of those things. And then spirituality, she's a, a bona fide Dharma teacher, and we'll talk some about her Dharma uh, programs that are coming up. And um, these are her livelihood, which is what we're exploring. It's like, is it possible to um, to um, manifest something in the world that is, has a dharmic flavor to it, but that it has a fruitional flavor and, and, and that you can actually be contributing and making a, a living from what, what you're doing, sort of right livelihood. So um, the first thing I thought when we were just talking a minute ago was we were talking about, you know, Buddhism a little bit. And, you know, Ramdas has this uh, famous um, book out. Uh, it's actually a movie, Becoming Nobody. Yeah. That was his Dharma take, right? Yeah. So what I wanted to ask you starting off is, um, is it possible to become nobody and still be somebody? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. Yes, I think that the goal, right, is to be that somebody that knows that they're all buddies. Oh, all <laughs> like, buddies. You know, all body, um, or rather, you know, becoming the practice of becoming oneself um, is inclusive of, um, yeah, acknowledging what we're all the things that are serving in order for that becoming to be, you know, this, that I like the word uh, lending itself, all the contributing factors that are lending ah. themselves <laughs> to you in order for something to happen, you know, this practice of borrowing and becoming. That's such a great idea, introducing the notion of bar, it's borrowed. Uh it's another way of saying impermanence, isn't it? It's on loan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have to pay pay it back at some point or recirc recycle recirculate it. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I was struck by immediately with you just watching some of your video um, content on YouTube and stuff like that is um, the body. You know, it's also, if you want to look at a second tier thing that Buddhists have sometimes not really nailed, uh, you know, in, in terms of their articulation is the relationship to the body, to the physical body. Uh, and there's sometimes this notion of sort of transcending that and going somewhere else, which of course is not our, uh, you know, it's not the Vajrayana path at all. But um, you occupy your body as if you just landed in it and are exploring, oh, good, what is this thing? I got that feeling from watching you dance. It's like your arm was just kind of moving. So, oh, look, my, my wrist bends this way, and then it bends this way. And it feels like you're exploring it. Is that right? Yeah. I. It is. It's definitely exploration. And um, I, I, I have a form practice around it, which started – actually, this is a great place to begin for me because – the practice of how I move is very informed by my Buddhist practice. 
because I was exploring many moons ago um, the importance of refuge. Like, what is it that you believe is going to protect you? What mm. is it when the when the um, shit hits the fan? Like, where do you go? Like, what do you do? And I was thinking about and the practicality of refuge. And so I was thinking about how I was somewhere in me, I had this inspiration that art has the possibility to heal and transform. So I was thinking about it and I was like, well, if you think this thing is so powerful, then you should serve this and allow this thing called dance or creativity to actually be the solve, S-A-L-V-E, or bomb mm -hmm. that works upon mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. So then when you watch dance or you dance, you should act as though it has some sort of, you have to imbue it with some sort of power to, mm. to transform. And so that kind of mind, I started to really shift the way that I approach creativity with this as though I was serving the practice of dance, the practice of movement and and that I was, so it became much more of a listening practice than a doing practice where I tried to understand why I was making movements and as though there was some secret hidden, uh, you know, message in there. And so, yeah, there is a element that I think comes out of exploration, of curiosity, of like, you know, that there's maybe some alchemy happening. I don't use that word often, but mm. I know people use it nowadays. <laughs> you know, that might be a great title for a book. Where do you go when the shit hits the fan? That's really a very compelling idea. And the art of refuge, the art yeah. of taking refuge. Where do you go when the shit hits the fan? The art of taking refuge. So this is a very, of course, classically, right, in Buddhism, where do we take refuge? You know, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Um, so most of the people listening to this will have some idea what, what we're referring to. But in case they don't, could you maybe articulate the classical idea of refuge? As yeah, you're drawing so it the, from? the classical idea of refuge is this type of mind of where do you go for protection? And so the first place that you would go to is the Buddha's mind. And not just the Buddha's mind, but the, the quality that the Buddha's mind within itself, the emptiness of the Buddha's mind, you know, the lack of a quality within its own. And that my mind also has this same base quality as though like my mind is also made of ocean. <laughs> I just live in Florida instead of Virginia. You know, does Virginia touch the ocean? I don't know. Um, you Virginia know, Beach. Virginia Beach. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so this quality, what the Buddha's mind was this capacity to love all beings simultaneously. Wow, that's amazing. You know, it's possible for my mind also to be that type of vast. So I can imagine that. I can place my mind... I can imagine when I get scared, let me think of what would the Buddha do? You know, how would the Buddha do this? So I can reference a mind that has a larger capacity. 
And the Dharma jewel is the jewel, the understanding of this wisdom that I just shared, which is emptiness itself, the teachings that can help you. And so I always teach it like, what is that thing that you refer to? Like the 10 commandments, this set of wisdoms that we hold when we really need we're in a bind, we're, we're at, the, at the call of a girlfriend that's in a moment and we have to say something to help them. It's this reference to these base knowledges that we have. And then the third is the Sangha, which is the reminder that there are people who have traveled the path all the way to the end and have achieved some sort of sense of rest and peace. And so that tickling feeling of it doesn't need to be this way. Well, there's truth in that and you can trust it. So these two minds, one is that your mind is a, made of the same thing as the most genius mind in the world. <laughs> You're not. So wouldn't wouldn't Sangha also be just the ordinary co-travelers and our friends and our. Yeah. Yeah. The Sangha is the ordinary co-travelers and the friends. Yeah, you know, I love, sorry, yeah, yeah, apologize, overuse, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the th taking refuge is a huge part of my meditation practice, and so I really spent a lot of time on it. And, and so the way I've been defining it is that that remembrance that there is people that have traversed the path and, and arrived, and if you had reached great enlightenment, what would you do? You would do everything you could to plant little seeds everywhere to help everybody else. So that's the way I've been translating it. And, and you're saying this is an important part of your practice is, is to, how do you uh, practice that in your practice? Do you repeat the refuge formula? Are you contemplating yeah. it? What, what, what so form is it? I like? do two things that ground is one is I prostrate before I sit. And that's my way of coming prostrating to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And then when I sit, a part of my ritual to prepare my mind is I do the water bowls. And, you know, so I'm, I do the water bowls each time I sit to meditate. And within the water bowls, I've had a way of understanding like I'm taking refuge. You mean filling the water into the yeah. bowls? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Water, the offerings. Yeah. And so that's one way. And then my, my sadhana, my regular practice always starts with taking refuge. So yeah. there's three points, physical, and then a gesture of ritual, and then within the meditation. And then at the end, do you dedicate the merit? Is that part of it yes. too? Yeah. So it's classical sadhana form Classic. that you're doing. And is it, um, are you at liberty to say what sadhana you're practicing or is it a variety of them? I'll, I'll, no, I, I don't very, very much. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I come from the Vajrayana lineage. Mm -hmm. And so part of my practice is what we consider creating the merit field, which is, mm -hmm. uh, I think, the Western way is calling the, the preliminaries is mm -hmm. uh, inner guide, a teacher practice where you mm -hmm. are um, going through different steps, making offerings to your teacher, inviting the teacher to be there. And then um, once the teacher's there, it, it's, it's more of a shamatha practice. So oh, the okay. preliminaries move me into 
uh, right now I've been really focusing on, on that practice because the Vajrayana sadhana itself, I do in retreat settings. So I don't go through the sadhana every day. You know, when we talk in Dharma Moon about the shamatha, you know, the, the word that is has escaped the Buddhist uh, menagerie is mindfulness, right? It's just like they all got together, all the Buddhist practices, all the Buddhist teachers said, who can we get out of the penitentiary here and sneak them out into the water supply of the rest of the world? And it was mindfulness, uh, which is a very interesting thing that people have generically started using that word mindfulness, but obviously could refer to a, diff a couple of different styles of practice, mindfulness. So in um, the way it's sort of become known in the public wheel is intentionally placing your attention in a specific way to an object of awareness, such as the breath, and secondarily yeah. noticing with impartiality without judgment, what arises within you and with and outside of you, just noticing. So technically, the way I learned it back in the day, this would have been called shamatha vipassana practice, exactly. like shamatha slash vipassana practice. Um, the way that Trungpa Mukherjee taught it was mindfulness awareness. That was the, and, and from day one, we were doing both practices uh, merged together. They also say that every practice, including, you know, advanced tantric practices have a shamatha element and a vipassana element, right? So that some part of it is just being there with it and centering on what you're doing. And the other part is a sense of field awareness or discovery of what's going on in that space. So um, when you say shamatha, now there's a very pure kind of shamatha that is just focusing on the breath and developing a kind of as much concentration power as you can. Is that what you mean by shamatha, or is it more like the mindfulness practice that uh, other people are doing? No, I actually specifically have been uh, working on the techniques to be able to stabilize my attention on the breath uh, very specifically through just creating um, a depth perception and then placing my attention on the breath. Right. Uh, which has a lot of, you know, technical, there's lots of offerings that the teachers have given to help us build that strength. Yeah. And then because I'm teaching the Wheel of Life, I've been doing a different, actually, recently I've been uh, just doing that for a certain amount of time, which I time, and then I'll place, hopefully my mind is clear, that mind on a link, one of the links, and just focusing so, on that. And then is there more contemplation or you're yeah, an, it's more an, of an analytical analytic meditation. Yeah. But the yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, you know, sometimes I, I've referred to the shamatha as like the tripod of a camera. It's just the stability element. It doesn't really um it's there's if you delve into this, there's people who've had different ways of uh critiquing all of these practices over time. But the the critique of pure shamatha is that it can lead to a trance-like state. And um, and also, um, you know, there's there's not necessarily an awareness field that's simultaneously arising with, with the stability. Mm -hmm. So I agree with that. Actually. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree with that very much. I'm I'm quite uh yeah, I'm very diligently practice. I always 
teach shamatha with the outcome of placing it on a virtuous object. <laughs> How do you define a virtuous object? I've been looking for one lately. <laughs> oh, I mean, I would say, you know, I talk about this a lot. Virtuous objects would be, um, I would just say your teacher, a teacher, something okay. that you feel is the, you know, light. I don't mean like a candle or anything. I mean, yeah. like the wisdom, holders of wisdom. Yeah. So either the idea of, of what is the nature of all reality or mm. a teacher that holds and inhabits that idea. So like jnana sattva, like a being of, of, of wisdom that's embodying yeah. the principle that you're talking, that you're, you're embodying the virtue. And to me, there's a flip that happens because the, the, the cause that allows you to be still is also the serving of, of a virtuous, of, of a teacher mm -hmm. or serving of, of. Right of a being that's, that is, has the capacity to touch more than you're able to touch. Yeah. Beautifully articulated. And, you know, there's, um, it, this is what it's, you know, you're, you obviously have classical training if you want to look at it that way. Like, you know, I used to see kids jamming out in the square in Woodstock, New York, like decades ago, playing free. Yeah, I'm sure you know that expression from your jazz sure. background. I know you have jazz you know, all over your background. Uh, but they weren't really free. Mm. You know, now, then you listen to Ornette Coleman or mm -hmm. <laughs> doing mm -hmm. this, or Sun Ra or somebody like that. And you go, this is, a, or John Coltrane, this is a completely different experience. So yeah. you obviously have that classical training, but now you're bringing it into, um, and making this transition with you, you said that the, the refuge serves your um, your movement practice yeah. and informs it. So could you take could you walk us through that transition? Yeah, a bit? yeah. So I described refuge as, and I I'm very clear when I share this with other. There is the classic the Buddha Dharma Sangha, right. but do we really? have a relationship to the buddha do dharma it's not an english word let's translate that into mm. something that actually is conceptually used within your own vernacular and so it's basically what is the biggest thing that can always protect you like a sense of love and a sense of strong wisdom that has the capacity to GPS you <laughs> out of a problem. You know? <laughs> and there's certain things that open our hearts. You know, like certain people believe like cooking when they cook, it's just like it, it, it teaches them the generosity, the patience, the, the importance of truth. All of the, their ethics can be learned through a relationship to the thing you adore. Yeah. Think about it. Like your partner, they, they, they press you in this way. And so I really allowed myself to let go of the words of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and really be more honest to 
well, in my vocabulary, in my experience, what do I feel is really powerful? And because I believe in practicing a belief system that nothing within itself has any power on its own, I have to relate to it. There's no like we have, you know, I have, you know, Avalokiteshvara here. There's no like power in that statue, you know, or mm. there is, it's only the way I relate to something mm -hmm, that creates mm -hmm. that power. Mm-hmm. There's no Buddha like, oh, if you go left and then walk five miles, you'll find the Buddha and then you'll go and ask him if you can take shelter. There's no location Buddha. Mm -hmm. There's only idea Buddha and there's only concept Buddha. And that concept can live in all things. Mm -hmm. So I ran the, the math through my mind and I said, well, you know what, Miriam, the thing that you really love that you think is awesome and you truly believe is going to bring you happiness is devoting myself to my art practice. And so I started to not change my relationship to my art practice of, oh, I, Miriam, I'm going to go sit down and do this thing. I kind of started to create a a relationship with dance as though it's something that had a life on its own that I was responding to. Like there's many artists would say, oh, the, the sound just moves through me and I'm a vehicle in which it comes out or something, mm -hmm. you know? And my practice is a practice of tuning my mind, my technical ability to hold certain concepts in my body, like to have the strength to have an idea and able to sustain that. And so when I say I take refuge and I use my practice as a way, it's this just practicing believing that I can create a relationship with my art and therefore I can create the cause and effect to make it powerful because I'm treating it that way. You know, what just came to mind uh, while, while you're talking about this is I'm, I'm very interested in oracular practices and oracles mm -hmm. in general. And, um, you know, uh, it, it's leaked into my everyday life in some ways, but I've also sort of tapped into it. I, I, had the occasion to meet both of the oracle, two of the oracles of the Dalai Lama, and just in casual conversation for hours, which was just wow. incredible, incredibly. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, the Nechung Oracle and Kondo Suringma, and they're clearly both multi-dimensional beings in a way that you just don't see very often. They're right there, human. They're not even, you know, considered to be teachers per se, exceptional teachers. I don't think, but they stuff comes through. So I think that sometimes part of the artistic process is oracular in the sense that you kind of don't always know where it's coming from and where it's going. Do you do you find that like you, you're in a sort of state of discovery and you're 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 almost one of the people who's receiving it as much as anybody else who's watching you do it? Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like a reorganizational practice, is what I say. Meaning. It's like giving value to the, the things around me. And there, and so like, uh, let me use the word, the language you just used. So yes, I do feel like things uh, are happening because I'm creating space. I'm like, 
let's make it the most optimal situation for something to happen. You know, I'm going to set the table super nice. I'm going to make sure I'm taking care of my body. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to practice with a certain respect and ritualisticness to my, my practice. And when I'm in a jam and I don't know what to do, I'm going to trust in the process of creation that I'll find my way out. And all of that ritual, I feel like makes it conducive and creates the causes for the dance and the art to start to actually speak to me. Mm. It takes a lot of bravery to do it in front of people, doesn't it? Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's actually was one of my least people like, oh, let's go out dancing. I'm like, oh, you're like, I don't even <laughs> like, like I, I, vulnerability for someone who feels as much as I have as a child and now right. as a grown person was always like, oh, um, but I do it because I love it. Were there dances in your family? Yes, they're everywhere. Oh, they oh so it's part of your family DNA. Then. Yeah, dance and music. Yeah, and, musicians and, too. Yes, dance, music, and nurses and doctors. That's like my wow, wow. That's a really that's a similar combo that I have in a way. My, yeah, uh, yeah. My dad was a doctor, and my my uh, uncle was a great jazz musician, and uh, my mom was a Broadway producer. You know, so the, wow. the, that those two threads, you know, and my uncle, my other uncle was an anesthesiologist. Did that happen in the States, in, in New York? Yeah, I, I, I was born in New York. I'm one of those. Where were you born? We were born in the same hospital. Right, we were born in the same hospital, right? We <laughs> talked about that the last time. I Beth Israel, that. right? Yep. Yeah. Wow. And it's still there. I know. I Let's know. go there sometime and walk through the halls and see if we remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's not i've been there a lot i mean not a lot but you know that is real it's not my favorite place to go we could walk outside <laughs> yeah well you know i grew up in stuyvesant town right across the street there yeah so that and we were just on the lower east side that's like stomping grounds for me and new york is um oh new york is such a powerful mother isn't it it is. Let's go to Veneros. Did you ever go to Veneros? Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. So that I will do. That's that was. I used to go to PS nineteen. Oh. was on Eleventh Street. I went and to PS forty. I think we went through this when the last time we talked. Yeah. We were like right different. Yeah, little, kind little of bit like time moving. offset, but you know. So you went to PS nineteen. Wow, a lot of my friends went there. And then where? Well, I went to my, I was the first child. So with the uh, nature of that, they moved me around a lot, like to find uh, the best school. So I ended up going to PS3 across town. And then I went to Manhattan East. And then I went to a Waldorf school. I went to a lot wow. of schools. I ended you know, up at LaGuardia. For regular people who don't, don't know what we're talking about, PS <laughs> means public school. And in New York, <laughs> yes. it's just, you got a number, you didn't get a name. And some of them had names too, but. So, but then you ended up with LaGuardia for people who don't know is a performing arts school. Yeah. Is it not? Yeah. So you knew very early on that you were going to be a performing artist then. Yeah. I've been dancing since I could walk. Cause my mother is a dancer and my dad's a musician. So 
I, I mean, there's stories of me like falling asleep in the bass drum where they usually put a blanket. Like there's a couple of photos of me. Like, yeah. That's the like, album cover right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what beautiful. is the name? I forget. A sousaphone, which is the brass oh. instrument they play in the big bands that have right. like the big mute. My dad had one and that was like, amazing as a little kid because it's like i don't know you're i was like three four i would play in the sousaphone was your dad a horn player no he is um he's still working he, he's a bass player upright bass but he's oh, cool. now really known for his conduction and large you know he has a lot of he does like he's on tour right now in vermont with a, a choral group that he composed for wow how cool yeah i mean yeah. really how cool is that yeah. Well, that's kind of where the, you know, talk about like, how do you integrate the Dharma and your life? I think first is you need to be given, you kind of either it comes for you or somewhere else, given permission. Like mm. I, you can actually do, you're allowed to do what you want to do. Guess what? Ring, ring. Uh, <laughs> I'm your alter ego saying you can do this. <laughs> and I think my parents very much, were um, pushing me when I was, I, I was, because they were so um, integrated in both, my mother's very religious, my dad's very religious, very spiritual, mm -hmm. um, and very kind of free and avant-garde. I was craving um, conservative anything. Because <laughs> you were going back the other way. Yeah, because I grew up in the East Village and my parents <laughs> were poets. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, it's always back and forth like that. Um, that's a funny, a funny rebound thing. So now, were both your parents making a, a living from their art forms? Was, was yeah. that their? That was so. You grew up in a, in a place where everybody's being creative, and and also that's their livelihood. Yeah, I don't remember them doing anything else. My mom now runs a organization, an arts organization, which is administrative, but wow. um, she still performs. She's in her seventies wow. and still dances. You know, it's going to be hard for you to know how cool that all is because that's what you had. Mm. You know, I mean, you can talk to people who've had so much struggle with their parents in terms of like the level of, um, not feeling that they were heard, seen, known for who they are. Um, there's so much pain there in the world sometimes, you know? Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm not saying you lived in utopia or anything like that, but um, it's pretty cool that uh, that your parents were artists and that you followed in that track. And the, the medical thing, if, if, if comparing notes with you is, for me, that's the, the Dharma thing is medical. Hmm nurse being, you're like a nurse you're like a doctor you know you're you're looking um you know i have a a true when my father passed away i i inherited this little um chinese uh doll that he had um uh, a japanese i'm sorry that he had inherited over there uh, that he bought over there and it was a medical doll the woman would come in and, and because it was too intimate to point oh, my shoulder hurts, you would point on the doll. Oh, on wow. ceramic doll. Yeah. So it hurts there, you know? So, you know, good doctors, right. They ask you, where does it hurt? 
uh, yeah, I'll tell you where it hurts. First noble truth. That's where it hurts. You know, mm -hmm. the, the whole, the whole samsaric foundation. So isn't that part of also part of what you're doing is you're a healer. Yeah. That's, isn't that more from that side of the family in a way? Yeah. Yeah. You, you kind of just <laughs> so funny. I just was saying, like, you took the words out of my mouth, basically. <laughs> I, um, I was actually, I was doing a recording today. Um, yeah. It, I think it takes a lot. It's, it's very hard to know what's going on. Mm. You know, I think it takes, it's why I've been more and more trying to make sure that my toolbox, my mental toolboxes is, is sharpened because to be able to be still enough to go deep to understand what is really going on i mean that's the posterity we're talking about you know creativity dharma and how to make a buck the posterity part of it is actually the knowing yourself part mm -hmm. well know? here's the here's the way that i, I mapped it out is the creativity spiritual the first chapter is called joining heaven and earth which is this sort of ancient paradigm of having unobstructed vision vast view big big view and then connecting that with the grounded reality that temporal reality that you're in so that's a very ancient paradigm i happened to, when i heard learned that i thought this is really really good and it's also the basis of art it's the basis of government in like ancient china it would have been you know, the emperor is supposed to join heaven and earth on behalf of the society. That's actually their gig. That's the person who joins heaven and earth for the whole, the whole tribe, the whole group of people. So um, then at a personal level, it's you connecting your vision with the practicality of executing it. And so meditation has a heaven, a spacious kind of quality, and you open your view up. And then something usually comes in, like when people are looking for a vision quest or something, something materializes in that space. Trump uh, Rinpoche is called the first thought, you know, first thought energy. There's non-thought and then there's the first thought appearing. And that is like, oh, I think I'm going to build an online Dharma community or I think I'm going to start a dance company. And it comes very pure, very fresh. Now, from there, the way I'm talking about it is you go, there's a road that goes left and a road that goes right from there. The one that goes left says, I want to do this very purely, very cleanly. I don't care about making money or not. I don't want that pressure on this. And I use the example of Charles Ives, who was a great co composer who sold insurance for a living mm -hmm. because he did not want that. The other road goes, this is going to be my livelihood. And, and, and that's where a whole nother group of decisions kicks in. How are you going to go about doing that? What your values are going to be? how you're going to run your business, you know, it's very earthy. And a lot of people, you know, that you will come in contact with her coming up will, will not be yet ready or, or synchronized in that way. They'll have a vision, but they may not know how to manifest it at a practical level. So the lively, the fact that you take what you do, which from what I've seen, it's very abstract in a way what you do. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you know, it's not like, oh, I've got this, you know, no, it, it's, it's jazz ensemble and it's doing this, this and this. It's, and, and for you to turn that into a livelihood and created a ground that way um, would be really. Can, can you talk a little bit about that part of it? Yeah, it's um, very, very honored to speak about that. If anything I say helps someone, that's great. 
Um, because I'm in a field that was, uh, even now there's a lot of conversation around, um, how to place value on temporal art. So unlike music, which isn't a funny place right now, because, uh, you don't have the physical records to set, like, what is the thing that you are using to, to exchange? So there is this interesting crossroads that, well, first I made uh, my living and uh, created a network through dancing with traditional dance companies. So that mm-hmm. happened earlier in my career. I lived in Europe and I spent oh. around six years dancing with a contemporary dance company. And for me, that was like very influential uh, creatively, education-wise, I, I learned a lot from the choreographers and my fellow artists. And in Europe, actually, they were quite integrated already with the dance, with video and, and multimedia things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then when I left Europe, I became very interested in um, being in more control of the spaces that I was performing in. And, and that Uh, had this creative um, evolution where I was just like, I'm actually not going to worry about the physical dance. I'm going to compose the architecture of the space. And I was really touched by visual art and architecture. And I can go on about the history, but the way that I was able to kind of move and create a lifestyle was um, through a few different things. One of them was being really interested in what I was doing. If I wasn't interested, like, is this an idea that you like, or is this honest interest? I was able to communicate that interest with other people and invite them along, even if they were not normally doing this type of work. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, this is actually interesting. And I was able to share that honesty of interest. And then because I was one of the few dancers that were working with music as extensively as I was, um, I became niche. (laughs) And so in some ways, like if I was going to truncate some of the key factors that I think enabled me to, to stay above water, pay my rent and be affluent by the end of that, or moving toward affluency was uh, being sincerely interested in what I was doing, uh, committing to my process, deciding when I was going to invest and when I was going to then um, stop that investment, stop and and actually like produce, you know, which is, has a different, it was cyclical. And the other was I found somebody that was, um, wanting to do the same thing I wanted to do. And I invested in them. So huh. I did the karmic thing. Well, how I do you mean that? I, I, I made a commitment in the, my early years to, I chose somebody that was struggling financially, but was very committed to their artistry. And I did whatever I could to um, support them. You mean as a business partner? Yeah. Or no, just like, I would volunteer my time. I would, you know, wow. help them go to the studio. Like I would, I would 
in serve them. And, you know, there, it was a non-for-profit organization that was always needing support to stay above water. So I was like, okay, this is going to be my karmic partner. I'm going to really help them to as much as I can and dedicate that effort to me having the capacity to have people help me. And so what happened was I started to get people coming and offering their labor, which my work is very labor intensive and just supported me. (laughs) Um, So I think those, those were, that was my game plan. My game plan was be learn to be articulate language was really important to be able to articulate what I was doing. Uh, stay interested, serve somebody else that was interested in what I was doing. And um, yeah, I I also was in a community of other art makers that was helpful for sure. Mm. Connections. Growing up in New York City is such a good, was helpful. I mean, not to say someone can grow up in New York City if they're not grown up in New York City, but the city has uh well you exposed uh, to a lot of, you exposed to a lot of things for sure yeah access to a lot of things right you know we had a funny moment where i was i was talking to um, a meditation student in um living in denmark in copenhagen and um we you know i think it's probably similar but when, when i'm working one to one with people like that we talk about buddhism and all those things and then we go like okay what else is going on in your world and he had started his own um record label that was very avant-garde jazz and of course you know the joke right you know about um you you have to pick your own uh group but um uh why was the so-and-so um why did so-and-so get involved with uh you know, jazz. Why did he get into jazz? And the punchline is for the money. You know? Right. <laughs> right. So, but this guy, so I'm saying, well, how do, how are you finding it? How you, you know, can you imagine the avant-garde jazz bass player in New York City going like, going to City Hall and saying, signing up for a program? <laughs> the government was paying for him to do right. that in Denmark. It was just part of the culture. Yeah. And he was making actually a reasonably good living uh, doing whatever he wanted to do creatively. And, you know, that's one thing you don't have in New York. That's why I went to Europe, because I was paid so well. I mean, it was an exceptional structure Mm. for an artist to begin their career. Very. We've never had anything like that over here. No, it's actually, I'm not sure. I actually, I don't, I can have a question for you. (laughs) Because I am finding this a certain validation arising, which I'm appreciative of, is all this years of classic Buddhist training and dedication to both my dance and then to my Buddhist practices. All of a sudden, I feel like people need this. Mm, the combo. Yeah. Like, I don't remember. I feel like people are sincerely like, shopping for what I have to the life experience that I happen to have this collection of, whereas, and I don't know if it's pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic talk, but I feel like the pandemic definitely made people aware of 
do I really love what I'm doing or am I just mm-hmm. habituated in this way? And so yeah. the stopping allowed them to keep pe- certain people to choose again. And then they're in this uncharted waters. And I was like, Oh, I know about uncharted waters. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like a global midlife crisis that's going on. Yeah. The whole, the whole planet's going through a midlife crisis of like, what are we doing here? And um, I know for me, there was two directions during the pandemic up and down. There wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of wiggle room for um, so. And, and I found myself just digging into creative uh, expression, recorded a whole album of music, uh, created Dharma Moon platform, you know, at a point where it could, you could have just rolled up shop. You could have just pulled up stakes and just kind of, you know, what's the point? Or huddled in fear, you know, of like what the outcome is going to be. So I definitely think both energies were present. And when I spoke to um, my shaman friends, um, Alberto Violdo, he said the virus is the um, catalyst for human evolution. That's how he sees it. Yeah. Not just this virus, but period viruses. Four noble truths. Um. I think in a way to drop into the first noble truth, some certain people in the States, you know, they're living closer to the realm of demigods. And so mm. the, the kind of awakening that happened the, you know, during the time of the pandemic, mm. it wasn't just the virus, also this kind of reckoning with America's history with their, mm. what this place was founded on. It was like, this, you know, yeah, awakening that this yeah. life is suffering. It's not based, you know, like the first link is ignorance. The first link of the states was like this moment of, you know, taking, you know, um, a genocide, not of like liberty and freedom. So I feel like it's a help helping. It helped me at least to feel some of the power of that renunciation so i'm having a vision right now okay (laughs) yeah so and it's uh it's probably something you already thought of but a a dance that has some form to it not just pure improvised called the nidanas have you done it i have not and it's a combination of the movement but also you're articulate you're very articulate you know Mm -hmm. uh your, your your speech is very very um clear and and um when you're talking dom you know some people are sort of you know touching feeling their way towards it but you obviously have sort of classical training so you can say things uh in a way that somebody can really you know dive into the meaning of it so interspersing the dance with with actually teaching actual teaching that'd be i really enjoy this (laughs) i want to say thank you so much because i need the nudges I'm a nudgy. Don't you know that's my You're nickname? I'm, I'm nudgy. That's my nickname. I do this. I say, don't try it at home, you know, but um, yeah, I but I can it. see it. I, I only nudge when I get a flash. I'm a flash nudge, you know, not mm-hmm. not a like a deliberate nudge. But I saw it like opening tonight, the Nadanas, you know, and, you, you know, I've thought of all kinds of ways. You, you probably know this, but I was on Duncan Trussell's podcast as a cartoon character meditation teacher. 
wow. giving his character who is an octopus. And more people got exposed to Dharma from that uh, and come around than any other any other way at the moment. So I'm pretty sure that the arts are really um, a, a portal uh, for for that. But, you know, and there's classical forms to that, too. I mean, I've seen classical dance and then there's the temple dancing and stuff. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about really Western. I don't think anybody's really mingled it with Western art forms yet. So I'm going to think about that. The Nidanas starring Miriam Parker. Well, it's, you a great, the, it's a great, the, you know, <laughs> it sounds perfect. I love starting with titles, too. So that, yeah. that's like. You kind of throw it out there and then you you make up the steps that need to be put into place to get there. That's a lot of how the creative process happens, actually. And what about the six realms? That could be another uh, part of it. How, how do you, uh, you know, because those are energies. People think it's a sort of a, a landscape and a theatrical setting with costumes and things like that. And it is that. That's true. That's the. But it's a more inner landscape. It's, uh, you know, what is it like in Hell Realm? Yeah. What would that look like in movement? It'd be If you were dancing the Hell Realm, what would you be doing? Um, I actually was speaking to another dancer who's doing a piece. I'm going to relate to what you're saying. She's doing a piece on alcoholism and addiction. And the way she's going about it is the physical gestures that she recalls being in an environment that was such. And as I was talking and, and watching what she had been creating, she comes from classical ballet. Um, it really was like, oh, these are the hungry ghosts, you know, <laughs> the realm of the hungry ghosts. And, and like, I was trying to think about like moments where my mind has touched that realm and like, mm. is it a physical, can I recognize it just from my own, you know, like where you're coming close to like the edge of something that could be dangerous for you, like a state of mind, or if certain conditions are in place, you might get sad, like on the, you know, I think about my grandmother was very close to me when it's her birthday or certain things, I have to make sure I'm in a positive place to kind of just be mindful. So like I was thinking about, so what her, the gestures were, I don't know how, I actually don't know if I could verbally express them right now, what I would think the hell realms would be like. Um, but could you move that way? If you just took I've that tried. In. I've mm -hmm. tried actually. I've I've thought about certain things, and um, <laughs> I think that there's. I have actually in integrated some things into the the work. I think what's hard is to hold that state of mind in a mm. place that feels safe, mm. and that's where I, I I guess what I would need to do is really move through that, and it's almost. Because it's interesting to the difference between a pictorial description and actually an ex really experiential thing, sure. you know, like I'll draw it for you. No, I'm going to in, 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 embody it, it for you. Yeah. But that it, reminds me of like some of the ways I've described dance similarly to the, I don't, for those who are familiar with, um, the stories of Jesus Christ holding, you know, going through the crucifixion of like, 
I will embody this suffering for you. And I never used to understand it. And, mm, mm, mm. and like, but I feel like artists in some way, there is this level where it's like, you know what, you would, let me do this for you. I'll show you what happens. Yeah, yeah that's right. That one, two, three, and four. And you can move your mind as you watch this opera, this ballet mm. happen. So you don't have to do it. You or know, so you can identify like, that field of experience and liberate yourself from the entrapping quality of it. Ideally, yeah. You know, there's a Buddha in each of those six realms, and the Buddha can hang there effortlessly, talk to the people, give birth to people, uh, engage the energy of it, but never be trapped in it. And, okay. and so the Buddhists can come and go, um, and that's a very interesting, as you said earlier, that's just a mind element, which is because the mind has been liberated from attachment and grasping, which is the, you know, the eighth Nidana link there, you can engage those energies really fearlessly. And that's what they do, right? Our Bodhisattva friends, yeah. they, cause they, they can go into a, 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 a psych ward in the hospital and, and, and not get caught up themselves. They, they, they can just tend to the beings there, you know? So it is interesting to embody that energy. I see what you're saying. You could become a little bit maybe um, uh, inhabited by it, you know. Well, you have to be skilled. It's kind of, I don't know. I think that the practice of Tonglen in some mm. ways is like being able to hold space for that type of mind that is what it is, is mm in the throes of something right yeah exactly <laughs> like, well, and and totally can't yeah. untangle themselves i think on some level you know if you're at the 10th boomy or something i don't know in some level like you can you remember there is this knowing like oh i see what's happening and i know how you're going to make your way out so that's the thing, like, maybe if I was to work on that, <clears throat> excuse me, it really having a preliminary practice of, of understanding, mm -hmm. like, all right. I mean, that's such a beautiful bodhisattva gesture. I, I, I thank you very much for that. Mm. I, I, as I say, I can see you doing it in my mind's eye. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, a, a real hybrid of the two things I've, you know, I'm writing two musicals that are kind of based on there's a thread of, of Buddhism in there, a serious thread, but it's not didactic. It's experiential, and it happens in the course of the story. There happen to be some Buddhist thingies in the story or, uh, you know, part of that journey is there. So um, I, I think it's embedded in us at this point. And in fact, we've been... Um, uh, in, infected with it in a way. So it's going to come out, but all of a sudden you find yourself in a Western culture and a, a Western context. And to do just these classic Asian art forms doesn't really cut it all the way through until yeah. you really bring it all the way home. So I, you know, we studied uh, tea ceremony and flower arranging, things like that. I, they're so beautiful and um, the principles are so embodied, but I have rarely seen yet anybody taking the real deeper understanding of those um, principles and putting into um, a Western-derived uh, art form. Well, that's it. 
I mean, you are like, I think it's that, that using the rubric of how to find your, what, you know, the four noble truths, 12 links to divinity, the eight, you know, this, whatever it is, (laughs) you know, the eight noble path. You're taking that understanding the best you have of how to get out of suffering Mm. and do your best to bring everybody with you and applying that mind onto your vocation of dance or culinary arts or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and using it actually apply dharma that's my new thing like let's not learn dharma let's apply it right now and learn to it's that translation that deepens your understanding takes it out of the viewership thing where you know when you watch something that's a little less connected to your culture like a tea ceremony, which you're not, you know, you don't have that practice. It's like you're viewing something out there that is not related to you. So reserving that practice into saying, okay, I mean, that's what, what meditation does for those who are beginning. And I still think of myself as a beginner in so many ways. It's like, I look for small traces of what I want to experience on a much larger level. And I just meditate on them. So those small experiences become my whole body in a single moment. You know, um, that's the goal. And then I can start to really use those moments as try to be them as much as I can and then dedicate them to them ex you know, exponentially grow. And I think sometimes it's that that looking at things on a, what did you, I don't remember the language used, but like looking at the big picture. Yeah, heaven and and, earth. Right. And then looking at where you are right now and and trying to find the big picture in the now in some sense. So sometimes it's described as, you know what a plumb line is? Yeah. You, you hold it here and then it just drops down. So you can always find the vertical. Um, right. gra- gravity will find you the vertical. Even if the room is like this, the plumb right. line is going to be like that. So the idea is if your mind is aligned and you just take the plumb line down, it's going to synchronize your current activity in alignment with that um, boundless point of view, you know, that open point of view. It's not so easy because along the way, the line gets wobbled by our clashes and our uh, habitual patterns and all, all the things so it's interesting to me that uh, the, at least the way i understood buddhist practices is they go through a lot of form realms and then they come out the other end where somebody literally just says why don't you just relax mm. as it is and so beyond all the uh, you know practices with form the formless practice is this supreme one you know the um, the ati yoga and things like that, Mahamudra. So, if you said that to a beginning practitioner, their relaxation is gonna, you know, it's not gonna be disciplined enough. Yeah, not gonna have enough uh, alignment. So, um, in that space, though, I, I don't know. There's such, if you don't mind me saying so, it just feels like what you're doing is just. Um, rife with potential i like that (laughs) you know i mean 
you can figure out if it's a blessing or a curse as you go. But I'm, right. I'm, 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 you know, that idea of dance, Western origining dance and music becoming a vehicle for real Dharma, not just baloney Dharma, not new age Dharma, but real classic Dharma is so interesting to me that it like gets me, you know, to, it, it would, I'd, I'd be the first online at the theater. I've gone to see the 12 Nadanas. <laughs> well, what's yeah. a Nadana? Well, come along. We're going to find out. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what it is, and I'm going to show you what it feels like. Because that's where I think a lot of people are missing the boat, is, is what does it feel like to, to, to be in a realm? You know, you're, I'm going to share with you and the audience a weak place that I have that I, it's, it's a place I've been questioning um, is like, I just started even I have, I'm not tooting my own horn, but it's, I know it must be okay. Cause I enjoy it so much, mm -hmm. which is I'm pretty good at uh, leading meditation. And so uh -huh. I, I teach a lot of meditation and, I've, I've gotten a lot of good feedback on my voice, a certain voice that works and timing and, and the use of language. And, um, and I also enjoy speaking about Dharma and I've, I make efforts to not use traditional words all the time, but I haven't totally allowed, like I'm looking at where these two meet um, in my practice. Like, I started to use language in my last piece where I was, there was recording of sound and music. And then there's also me speaking, which I've never done before. And like using classical terms and structures that are given to us through the um, Galuba traditions or the Buddhist traditions. Uh, I haven't really allowed myself to use them. And I, I feel like the, it's, what I say to you, like the first step is telling, having someone said you're allowed to use them mm -hmm. or you're allowed to do this. Go yeah. ahead, do it. Yeah, sure. You know, because I, um, in the beginning of my practice, like you can look on my Instagram. I have my art Instagram and my Buddhist Instagram. Yes. And yep. that's like, you know, I think 2023, I'm going to have to let go of that division. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a question for, you know, I'm, we can talk about it again another time to see what happens, but. Well, for what it's worth, and since we were born in the same hospital, that's what I'm doing. You're, you're taking out the separation. And it's, it's not an artificial or, you know, like superficial thing. It's just, um. For example, you know, we just played a gig at the Cutting Room Tuesday night. And I'm thinking, well, who am I? Now I'm in my musician role. And I'm supposed to do this, that, and the other thing. But really, a lot of that's artificial, how you distinguish it. So um, I didn't quite get to the point, but I had my little meditation bell with me. And I just thought, okay, now we're just going to sit for a couple of minutes between tunes. <laughs> but wow. I didn't quite do it because I didn't have mm -hmm. the stones to get that far. You know, mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, if if there was a way to uh, so so having the right kind of confidence is what we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. And, and right kind of respect for the both media, both sides of the thing. Um, and I but I do think there are art forms. I, I, I find people starting to cook them up where the distinction is really m minimized. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you 
my challenge and my misunderstanding that I keep provocating um, is that people, my past experiences, they like didn't understand what I was doing because I was doing many different things. So sure. the idea of simplifying worked for me for a while in my career, actually. Um, yeah. What they saw would maybe be complex, but the way I was serving, it was pretty simple. And so having two different accounts helped to be like clear this is meditation dharma yoga and this is this and then and i'm thinking as i'm hearing myself speak yeah, right now right. <laughs> that i'm underestimating people they can handle the complexity <laughs> i'm yeah. miriam you know or whatever you want to call me miriam call me miriam <laughs> it's this thing you know it's it's um our our attempt to integrate our experience in a way that um, it takes a lot of courage. And what I what I thought of, you know, there are some there's four what's called dignities in the Shambhala teachings, which is tiger, lion, and Garuda and a dragon. And the tiger represents meek or humble mindfulness. You know, it walks very slowly and very mindfully. The, the, the snow line is perkiness. You have a sense of transcending doubt and, you know, going with the energy of first thought more. And the third one, which is the one I feel is like where we're really uh, hanging out right now, is the Garuda. You, 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 do you relate to the Garuda at all, that energy? Right <laughs> now, yes. It's, you know, and, and I'm the, happy to be vulnerable. It yeah, feels very yeah. good because yeah, I okay. think it's real. Yeah. Well, the Garuda is from Indian mythology. It's a celestial hawk, but the quality of it is it's hatched in midair. So it never lands. It refuels and it, it, its whole activity is, uh, is, is, is groundlessness, exactly groundlessness. So because there's groundlessness, there's fearlessness. And, uh, so, and the Garuda shrieks, it has a shriek and it terrifies ego. It just, the annihilate, the shriek is so penetrating and fierce. So, but, and, and the quality of it is daring. It's daring. And then the final one is the dragon, which is inscrutability, which is nobody knows what you're doing. It's like Miles Davis mind. Why is he doing that? I don't know. It's too deep. I can't go there. I can't find the bottom of it. I can't find the top of it. He doesn't seem to care what I think about it. Um, so it's not inscrutability like a clever masking of something like that. It's really uh, a depth, a profundity that can't be fathomed. Exactly. So Garuda, can we? That's a, maybe a good place to end. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, that's the voyage. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. What a pleasure. Yeah. Now, I, before before we. Uh, and I, we could go on for, for for me for a long, long time talking like this. I hope we get a chance to um, to do that. But can you share with um, the people watching this? How do they find you and get time with you and and and, and space with you? Um, are you teaching some? programs are you do you have a website what what, what should where should people find yeah, you so right now um the prana life is a new project that i am launching not just with any exceptional yogi but with um 
my cousin. So it's family. We grew up together in the East Village and we're doing this together. And she comes from a very strong yogic Vedantic uh, background. And I'm carrying um, the Buddhist background, but we both are professional dancers. Um, she danced with fellow ballet for many years and we teach retreats together as well as ah. all my course offerings are on that platform. So it's called pranalife.com. Yes. Prana life. Okay. So everybody can check that out. I'm going to check that out. I haven't seen that website yet, but yeah. pranalife.com. And that includes both some sort of formal teachings and, and the creative expression yeah. too. Um, well, we just launched, so I'm, the creative expressions are now still in facilitating the opening of those. So we'll, we'll have a retreat. We do creative retreats, which are really focused for people to come with writing projects, dance projects. And we um, invite that. It's almost like a residency that we're hosting. And, and is that associated with the retreat you were doing in Bali that you mentioned yeah, in November? That's the, that's the, that's the place that you can find it. Yeah. In Bali, in November. So you you can have the jingle be Prana Life will call you. Happens to be in Bali. All right. So um, beautiful. Uh, what an what a privilege. What a pleasure it was to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank okay. you. Okay. And all to be continued. Yes, please. And now, an improvised voiceover musical monologue to conclude our episode. We'd like to thank you for watching CSM. We really appreciate each and every one of you, our friends. We'd like to thank you Be Here Now Network for all you do. We are grateful that we all ended up here together with you Ooh, if you'd like to hear some more of this podcast Then head on over to www.behearenownetwork.com And check out all the sweet pout action If you'd like to connect with Diamond Head over to DharmaMoon.com We've always got a lot of programs running We'd like to meet you That is all that we've got For this podcast It's been real nice spending time with you May you be safe and healthy and happy
Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.